Wow, shalom mishpacha, hello family. It is always like a family reunion to get back with you. Um, before I say anything else, I need you to know something about you. Uh, Margie and I have been in full-time vocational missionary service for 31 years. UBC, and I'm not saying this gratuitously, uh, Uniontown Bible Church has raised the bar so high in terms of missionary care, um, you do it well. You keep us informed, you pray for us, you send us notes. Uh, when we come into town, you treat us like rock stars. It's actually a little embarrassing. Um, but we just want you to know how grateful we are for your amazing nurture and care and good communication. So thank you for that. Now, you've been supporting us for uh, years now, and so I want to give you a little bit of an update on just what's going on in terms of our work in New Zealand. Um, you know, I've been begging you for years to come visit us, and I think only two of you have. What's the deal? Why are you so rebellious? Um, now, we have a very simple mission statement that is bringing the message to the original messengers, the uh, message being the message of the gospel, the original messengers being the Jewish people, and also to equip the church to do likewise. In, in light of that amazing Romans 11.11 piece that says that you guys, Gentile Christians, are provoking us guys, Jewish people, to jealousy, well, the church is an incredibly important, important factor in the equation of Jewish evangelism. So we're helping to equip the church like you to reach us. That's God's plan. So uh, here we are. We're basically in New Zealand reaching out to Israeli and other international backpackers in New Zealand. Now, the thing about New Zealand is we've got 3.7 million international tourists coming every year. Now, that's just about as many residents as there are in New Zealand. So you can imagine all the world is coming to this place in terms of the gospel initiative. It makes perfect sense to be reaching out from New Zealand. The world is there. Now, the biggest reason for their coming is just the wow factor. I mean, it's an amazing place. The pictures I'm showing you are scenes that are very easy to see, especially in the South Island, where most of the sort of gobsmacking, eye-popping, heart-pounding beauty is, South Island. It's Middle Earth. And the people who are visiting there are kind of not coming for a week or two. They're, they're actually, the backpackers are coming for like months, sometimes years. Now, if you can imagine, I know while you're sitting here looking at these pictures, isn't it already inspiring you? I mean, isn't it moving you? Don't you love the Creator all the more for seeing this kind of beauty? Now, imagine if you were immersed in this kind of beauty, day after week after month after year, walking through it, experiencing it. I don't care if you come into New Zealand an agnostic, an atheist, you cannot be immersed in this kind of beauty day after day and be unaffected. And so it's strategically, missiologically speaking, it's an amazing place to be, to be touching human souls that are being warmed by the creation of the Creator. You can't see this stuff without eventually asking who, what is behind all of this beauty. And so, we're grateful to be there, obviously. Now, most of our work, obviously, is evangelism. This is why we're there, front-line evangelism. Um, but one of the things we do is evangelistic backpacker barbecues, just to give you a little sense of what we do. We don't actually Barbecue backpackers, because um, that just seems mean, you know? But uh, we do have these evangelistic barbecues. 
in these barbecues, we serve up a lot of good food. We serve up really good news about the Messiah Jesus. Remember, these are international backpackers from all over the world. Uh, we serve up some good Bibles, too. We have a reference table with Bibles and gospel literature and tracts in all different kinds of languages. Often these people have never engaged with God's Word. It's incredible to see them for the first time connecting with the God of the Word through the Word of God. It's very exciting. Now, I love this picture because sitting on this lawn, believe it or not, are 42 nations. Excuse me, 24 nations. I'm a little dyslexic. <laughs> 24 nations. I mean, these are, the, these are the catalysts. These are the change makers. These are the leaders of the emerging generation. For 70 US dollars, we can have an event where we share the good news with dozens of nations at a time. This is the kind of thing we can do every single day in New Zealand. Now, our main focus, of course, is reaching Israelis. Now, as your brochure, your, your bulletin has a little bit of good propaganda about us in there, uh, if you check it out, you'll see that it, it talks about the fact that Israelis have mandatory military service. They must serve in the Israeli Defense Force. When they're done with that, they virtually all take some big overseas adventure. And so many of them come to New Zealand. The reason it's important to meet them after this season of life is because having just been traumatized by two to three to four years of military service in the Middle East, they are asking life's most important questions. Um, they're thinking about the next stage of life, even the meaning of life. This is the time where it's best to meet them in a place away from Israel where they're thinking, feeling deeply about spiritual matters. Now, the way we do this is through free accommodations. I said that free because they are free. There is no cost to these Israelis. Basically, these three things are Israeli hostels, and they are staffed by born-again Jewish believers, Israeli believers who obviously speak Hebrew, and other international um, young Christians who staff these various facilities. Our premier facility is the Zula Lodge. It's in Wanaka, which is a uh, famously beautiful and a great resort area. The, the Israelis love it. The, uh, the Zula Lodge is brimming with uh, Israelis for about seven months of the year. Actually, we have Israelis all year, but for seven months, it is teeming with uh, young Israelis. Uh, every single Friday night, we have a Shabbat celebration, uh, an Arab Shabbat, where we celebrate the Sabbath with, with them. And during this Shabbat celebration, we talk about the Lord of the Sabbath, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus Christ. This is one of our Israeli volunteers sharing in Hebrew uh, the gospel of Yeshua to our Sabbath guests. These are typical scenes in the Zula, Bible studies, uh, our staff sharing their testimony. You can't imagine the impact. When, here is, here is uh, Karen, one of our Israeli volunteers, desperately in love with Yeshua, loves Jesus, sharing how she as a Jewish woman has come to faith in Jesus the impact this has on other Israelis is astounding. And this happens every day at the Zulu Lodge. The homestead is another one of our facilities. It is managed by uh, Zohar Gonen. He is our Israeli worker, my coworker, an amazing evangelist, just a dear fellow. And typical scene at the homestead, we have anywhere from 12 to 25 Israelis every single night. Um, Zohar has an amazing gift. He's just, he has the ability to bring the Messiah, into just about every conversation. Ah, oh, look, there he did it again. Amazing. So subtle. 
Uh, we have Chumus night every Tuesday. Say it with me. Chumus. Chumus. Spirit of hummus come out of them. It is not hummus. It's hummus. Got to spit just a little. Just don't spit in the hummus. Israelis love hummus, so we have hummus night every Tuesday. Again, another opportunity to share the gospel. What you're seeing here, you won't see this in Haifa, Tel Aviv, Jerusalem. You see a Jewish man, Zohar, in Hebrew, sharing about the Messiah Jesus from the Torah, the Hebrew scriptures, to 40 Israelis. This never happens in Israel. It's happening in New Zealand every Tuesday night. These are the opportunities we have. And finally, we have the campground. Margie and I, for 10 years, owned and operated the campground. Uh, it's where we launched a ministry. Because of a growing staff and growing needs of our staff, we've moved off of the campground so that we can serve the staff better. But we've had 2,300 Israelis visit us in this wilderness campground, which is kind of amazing because... I mean, we never thought they'd find us. You know what happens when Israelites go into the wilderness. <laughs> they get lost for like 40 years at a time. So the fact that they found us is pretty amazing. Anyway, the point is, in, uh, three years we've, in 10 years, we've had just under 7,000 personal evangelistic encounters with young Israelis. These are amazing numbers in Jewish evangelism. We're amazed. And we know that outreach through accommodation works, which is why, as I sort of shut this down, I want to show you one last thing to ask you to pray about it. Some of you have known this for years. We've been praying about having a facility in a little town called Teanau, where that green arrow was pointing at the south end of the South Island. Teanau is actually the strategic bullseye for Jewish evangelism. I say that because Tianau, this teeny village, is the gateway to Fjordland, and Fjordland is the place where the greatest of the great walks are. It is pure Middle-earthian soul. It is amazing beauty. All Israelis who come to New Zealand are going to be lingering in Tianau either before or after their walks. It is criminal that we don't have a facility there. And so we've been asking God for a facility. This place is on the market. It's perfect. We don't own it yet. We're asking God to give it to us. It is a motor camp. Uh, it has everything we need for communal facilities, for a house for our staff. It is perfect. Uh, and so we've raised about half the funds. Uh, and if you're looking for a great kingdom investment that will not only contribute to the salvation of Israel, but trickle into all the nations, this is an amazing investment. So at the very least, if you would pray with us, because this, this will be a game changer. It will exponentially increase the, uh, our outreach to Israelis in New Zealand. Now, we're serious. Gollum is saying, we need you, my precious. <laughs> if you are, uh, I guess, age 19 to 30, and you can make a minimum of a three-week commitment between November and April, we desperately need volunteers. I promise you the trip of a lifetime uh, these volunteers will be working in our various facilities. And uh, all we need to do is, you need to get them there and back. We will take care of them once they're there. They don't need to speak Hebrew. We will teach them a Jewish evangelism. We'll teach them everything they need. But if, if this interests you, and, or if you know someone who might be interested, have them talk to me, okay? Because we really, really do need volunteers. So uh, please pray for us. We're thankful that dogs are praying. We could use a few more humans. Uh, and please connect with us. Margie and I are going to be out in the foyer where we have a little sign-up sheet. 
sign up. We're not going to inundate with you with literature. We're going to shoot you an email now and then to tell you about what's going on, how to pray for us. We really, really appreciate your partnership. Well, guys, I am honored uh, to have been invited into this series called Ask Anything, in which the pastoral staff of UBC apparently has invited you, the congregation, to ask for messages on any subject, even the difficult stuff, which prompts me to ask the pastoral staff, are you completely out of your mind? (laughs) You don't do that. Guys, you choose your topics and you keep them non-controversial and safe. Did they teach you nothing in seminary? <laughs> now, if you, can, if you can see past the silly sarcasm, you know that I think this initiative by your pastors is so praiseworthy and so gutsy, and I so respect and admire them for doing it. Now, my assignment today comes on the heels of an interesting new book by a much-loved and respected Bible teacher, Andy Stanley, Andy, in this, in this book, writes that the problem... By the way, is there a monitor that I'm missing back there? No? Okay. Just wondering if I need to keep looking back. And I will. No problem. Good exercise. In any case, he says in this book that the problem with the modern church is, quote, our incessant habit of reaching back into the Old Covenant, the Old Testament concepts teachings, sayings, and narratives. And Andy makes this broad appeal to Christian leaders everywhere to consider unhitching your teaching of what it means to follow Jesus from all things Old Covenant. Andy Stanley in his book is saying we need to unhitch from the Old Covenant. He says this is necessary because, excuse me, when it comes to... When it comes to stumbling blocks to the faith, the Old Testament is right up there at the top of the list. Now, ladies and gentlemen, with the utmost respect for Andy, by the way, Andy Stanley has written some wonderful, wonderful pieces. I have to disagree with this very unusual statement. This this whole perspective is odd. At the very least, it's incorrect to view the Bible as having an old part and a new part. An old part with 39 books originally written in Hebrew and Aramaic, and a new part, 27 books originally written in Greek. No, that is not true of the Bible. The Bible is perfectly unified. The Bible is a divinely inspired, God-breathed narrative. It is a singular and holy work inspired by a singular and holy spirit. Dear ones, to unhitch from the first 75.5% of this amazing narrative makes as much sense as walking into a performance of Romeo and Juliet or King Lear somewhere during the fourth act of five acts. It simply makes no sense. And simply put, folks, without the ABCs, the XYZs makes no sense. Matthew's Gospel makes 93 references to the Old Testament Scriptures. 93! The Old Testament inspired writer, excuse me, the inspired writer Matthew relied on the Old Testament to validate his testimony. Without the ABCs, the XYZs make no sense. John's gospel rests entirely on the subframe of the feasts of Israel. Leviticus chapter 23, Deuteronomy 16 talk about this remarkable package of festivals that outline God's entire plan of redemption. That's in the Old Testament. And John, the writer of the gospel, 
presumes the reader's knowledge of these ancient biblical convocations. Why? Because without the ABCs, the XYZs make no sense. The book of Hebrews makes dozens of direct references to the ordinances of the tabernacle, to the history of Israel, from Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, all of which are Old Testament books. You simply cannot interpret the book of Hebrews apart from the Old Testament. Why? Because without the ABCs, the XYZs make no sense. Now guys, you received a handout when you came in this morning. Uh, take a look at it right now. You'll see that it starts with a list of 23 Bible doctrines. I wrote this up for you. And what I did on that is I asked you to check OT, if you believe the one particular doctrine originated in the Old Testament, or NT, if you believe it originated in the New Testament. Very simple. So as you survey that list right now, can you see any doctrines that you believe originate in the Old Testament? Now, I checked the bylaws of the church. You're allowed to talk during service, okay? Anybody? All of them. Somebody actually said all of them. Anybody else? Okay, well, I like that answer. It's true. Not only do all of these doctrines originate in the Old Testament, friends, but if you unhitch from those founding revelations, your understanding of doctrine will be weak at best and faulty at worst. Why? Because without the ABCs, the XYZs don't make sense. And, and by the way, good luck answering those 21 questions following this little survey after unhitching from your Old Testament. Because removing the Old Testament backdrop from the New Testament, you not only rob yourself of the richness and majesty of your Christian heritage, but you're left with scores of unanswerable questions whose secrets lie nestled deeply like gems in the treasure chest of the Hebrew Scriptures. Now, for the rest of my time here, I just want, to, I want you to allow me to give you one small example of how richly the Old Testament contributes to our understanding of Christ and Christianity. You've heard it said, you probably said it yourself, the, old, the new is in the old concealed, and the old is in the new revealed. Perfect unity. And one example of this divine dovetailing between the old and new is something called the Day of Atonement, something that's nestled very deeply in the Old Testament, Leviticus 23, Deuteronomy 16, Leviticus chapter uh, 16 and 17 as well. This is a stunning Old Testament revelation of the priestly ministry of Jesus. This is one of many hundreds of reasons why we cannot and should not unhitch from our Old Testament. Now guys, the word atonement is found over 1,300 times in the Bible. New Age narcissists like to render the word at one you know, that blissful state when you are at one with God. Om. No, that has nothing to do with the word atonement. The word is so much larger than this. It's a very simple little Hebrew word, kafar or kippur, uh, but it's packed with meaning for modern man. This little tiny three-letter word, kafar or kippur, implies ransom, the paid release of one held captive. It implies substitution, the exchange of a life for a life. It speaks of propitiation. It's a big word, but it simply means the appeasement of God's anger against sin. And it produces reconciliation. How? 
by means of shed blood. Now, if the message of atonement is ransom and reconciliation, the exchange of a life for a life, then the medium of atonement is blood. Leviticus 17, verse 11, which is in the heart of the Torah, says this, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your soul. There is no atonement without the shedding of innocent blood. This is at the core of the Day of Atonement. Now, although we're, we're far removed, you know, we're, we're part of a culture that's far removed from the concept of blood atonement, but there are life's experiences that are filled with illustrations and reminders of the fact that the life of the flesh is in the blood. Let me give you some examples. Uh, in Miami, Beach, Florida. There's a place called the Miami Serpentarium. I used to be a snake keeper. Don't hold that against me. Bill Haast was the guy who founded the Miami Serpentarium. Bill Haast, beginning in the 1950s, began injecting himself with snake venom. Now that sounds a little crazy, but what he was doing was he was producing an antivenin, if you will, a cure for snake bite, in his own blood, in his own body. And therefore, somebody who'd be bitten by a snake, even a poisonous snake like a cobra or a tiger snake, if he had a transfusion with Bill's blood, he would be saved. Saved by the blood of Bill. A simple example. Here's another example. Margie and I lived in Alaska for a while where we went to Bible school. We heard about this guy. He's actually an attorney. And his life dream was always to have a team of sled dogs. And if you know anything about sled dogging, you know you basically have to live with these dogs for a period of time so that they can learn everything about you, trust you, know you, understand your voice, your inflections. And finally, he, he bought that team of dogs and he lived with them for a season. And finally, the day came when he could go out into the interior of Alaska to uh, use his sled dogs. The weather forecast was good, but if you know anything about Alaska's interior, it's pretty wild and unpredictable, and a, a storm came up pretty quickly. The storm became pretty wild, and it was snowing, that kind of you know horizontal, wind-driven snow. The temps began to drop. He became lost, 20 below, 25 below, 30 below. He knew he was not going to survive the night unless he did something drastic. The dogs... Twelve dogs waiting faithfully for <clears throat> his next command. He called the first dog over. He slaughtered the dog, cut it open and put the bloody carcass on his body. That warm carcass kept him alive for a period of time until the body became stiff with cold. He called the second dog and so went the night. The next morning he was alive. Eight dogs were dead. And the four remaining dogs got him safely home. At that time, he made a plaque with the names of those eight dogs whose blood saved him. And every time a new client would come into his office, he'd say, look, I know you have some important business, but first, can we just go over, and I want you to see the names of these eight dogs, because if it weren't for these eight dogs dying for me, I would not be here today, saved by the blood of dogs simple illustration of how the life of the flesh is in the blood. Even Ziggy, do you remember the, the cartoon character Ziggy? Ziggy even gives us an illustration. Here's a, a poster from a blood drive, and Ziggy is saying, give life, 
It's in your blood. The life of the flesh is in the blood. But guys, these only hint at the truth. The truth being that the blood God has given saves so much more than just physical life. It provides for our greater need, eternal life, through reconciliation with our God. It is a bloody process, this business of transforming unholy humans into holy humans. In fact, so closely linked with blood is the process of being made holy that in the book of Leviticus, the words blood and holy both show up 87 times. Blood and holiness are forever married in God's economy for atonement. Atonement is a violent process, and it's one which many of us would just as well overlook. You may know, by the way, in the Christian world, or I should say in Christendom, there is a movement now to get rid of all hymns that mention the blood of Jesus. After all, it's uncivilized, it's barbaric, we're in the 21st century, no more need for all this blood talk, right? Wrong. I was at a bus station in Long Island, New York, I was waiting for a bus, cleverly, Uh, lots of people there, and I noticed this one woman with this big Star of David hanging from her neck, and I figured she's either Jewish or a very confused Gentile, either way it's very interesting, so... I went over to talk with her, we started chatting, and I said to her, her name was Roberta, I said, Roberta, what do you think about Christianity? And she said, you know, it's so disgusting. I mean, I could never follow a religion like that, the blood of Jesus, the blood of the cross. Oh, it's disgusting. I said, Roberta, you're Jewish? She said, yeah. I said, why does blood bother you? I mean, you know, every Passover, we celebrate the day when God provided the blood of lambs to free our people. We wouldn't be here if it weren't for the blood of those lambs. Roberta, every year on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement, we remember the day when our our high priest walked into the Holy of Holies with blood to provide atonement for the entire nation. And good grief, Roberta, right in the middle of the Bible, our own Torah, God says the life of the flesh is in the blood Atonement is in the blood. And suddenly her eyes lit up. She was filled with joy because her bus came. (laughs) And she could get away from this idiot. I used to work in a slaughterhouse, believe it or not, and from the outside, this slaughterhouse was not an offensive place. It was a very long, attractive brick building. And on one end of the slaughterhouse were, were these big pens with these very happy cows, a moo-moo here, a moo-moo there. And then your eyes would go from the happy cows you know, across this big, long building, and, there, and then there are these big um, uh, containers filled with wrapped steaks and canned meat. Okay, and you don't have to be very astute to figure out that something had to happen between the happy moo-moos and the canned meat, which we don't really want to know about. Just give me the product and spare the details, okay? But I worked inside that place, and I saw what happened. I saw cattle die by the thousands. I saw throats slashed and blood flow so freely that it formed rivers of blood in the trenches of the kill floor. It was a cold and hideous process, but it had to be done. Dear ones, there is no painless method for producing this this product called meat. You can't coax a cow to remove its flesh and hop in the freezer. There had to be death. And so intimate was our involvement with this death as employees in the slaughterhouse that we, we watched their suffering, we reached into their bodies, 
We became soaked with their blood. And some of us were even maimed in the process. But it had to be done in order to accomplish the task. Dear ones, likewise, there is no painless method for effecting human redemption. It demands pain and suffering and death. And so intimately involved was God in achieving this atonement that he too was maimed in the process. He, God, was maimed. Why? Because his standards, listen, his standards for providing human atonement are so high, only he could satisfy them. Only he could provide the blood of atonement. And in order to fully understand this, we need to look at the Day of Atonement from a biblical perspective. This is why we need not unhitch from the Old Testament. Now guys, the theme of this ancient Day of Atonement is access. Access by means of a mediator bringing an offering. The fullest expression of our faith as Christians is access to the God of the universe. But Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, fully and boldly demands there is no access without a mediator and an offering. But here's the problem. In the days of the Old Covenant, with its priesthood and sacrifices, the Day of Atonement couldn't accomplish perfect access. It was imperfect. It was frail. It was incomplete by God's design. Because only one man could actually gain access to God, and then only on one day of the year. That one man was Israel's high priest, the mediator, and that one day was Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. So I want to consider with you the ministry of the high priest on the Day of Atonement in ancient Israel, the day when that fabulous tent, this incredible tabernacle, graced the wilderness. Now, in the core of the tabernacle was a relatively small room called the holy place. And in the holy place was some very unconventional furniture. First of all, there was the incense altar, which represented the prayers of the saints. There was the golden lampstand, the menorah, which basically represented the ner tamid, the, the everlasting light, the presence of God. And then there was this very interesting thing we call the table of showbread. In Hebrew, by the way, it's called the lechem panim. Lechem panim, it actually means the bread of the faces. Each of these 12 loaves of bread represents the face of God. And in the Old Testament, the face of God represents the blessing of God. In Isaiah 59, the prophet Isaiah said to Israel, God has turned his face from you because of your iniquities. That struck terror into the hearts of, of Israel. Why? Because when the face of God is turned away from you, you are no longer in his blessing. May, the, may, may God's face, may his countenance shine upon you. It's blessing. The table of showbread was a, a stack of the faces of God blessings of God upon Israel. Now, part of the room was actually cut off by this huge veil behind which was the Ark of the Covenant itself. And between the, the cherubim, the cherubim, was the very Shekhinah, the very presence of the holy God. Now, Josephus, who was a first century Jewish historian, he describes this veil from the first century. He said it, it, it wasn't a very sheer, delicate fabric. No, it was four inches thick. It was cross-woven. It was renewed every single year, and it was meant to be impenetrable. In fact, to test it, 
they would tie a horse to either side of the, of the curtain. If the horses could rip the curtain, it was not fit for the Holy of Holies. It was through this impenetrable veil that the high priest and only the high priest would pass on the Day of Atonement. And for seven days before that day, the high priest would rehearse the rituals he would perform on that sacred day. The washing with water, the sprinkling with blood, the burning of incense, the lighting of the lampstand, the offering of the sacrifices, on and on and on. He mustn't make any mistakes. It was meticulous preparation. Every part of that day's service rested on his shoulders. The ashes of a red heifer would be sprinkled on him in case he was uh, unwittingly defiled by a dead body. The elders of the Sanhedrin, Israel's ruling council, were appointed to make sure the high priest fully understood the meaning and order of the service. They went through every aspect with him. And the night before the big day, the various animal sacrifices were paraded before the high priest so nothing looked strange to him. And finally, before he entered that place, he would be bound by a solemn oath not to make even the slightest change in the rituals prescribed. Ladies and gentlemen, are you getting a feel for the gravity of this day? The entire nation of Israel was in a state of national paranoia because this was the one and only chance they had to come before the Father to ask for what He and only He could give them, atonement. Margie and I are the parents of seven children. Uh, if we look tired, that's why. It's very funny. You know the, you know the cool uh, screensaver you have going on during the beginning of the service? I said to Margie, uh, Isn't that, aren't those designs cool? And she said, I don't know, it just looks like a sonogram to me. That's, that's how you can tell a mother of seven, right? Our first two are Lara and Ilana. And they had, when they were little girls, they had two friends, Aaron and Carrie. And when these four girls played... I mean, the decibels were deafening. They were incredibly loud. You'd hear them blocks away. But now and then, these four girls would decide they needed something that required the permission of the Father. Okay? Something so important that it would shape their destiny. Something like a, a Willy Wonka fudge bar from the ice cream truck. And they would begin to scheme quietly about this one opportunity to come to the Father. So once I was, I was reading a book in our living room, they were screaming in the basement, playing, having a great time, and suddenly it went dead quiet. And I was like scared. You know, I went to the top of the stairs, opened the door, listened, and I heard them scheming in the basement about something they wanted from me. And so Lara, my daughter, said to the, the other three, who will go? <laughs> and little Aaron said, well, I'll go. And Laura said, well, what are you going to say? You know, you got to prepare. What are you going to say? You only got one chance. And Aaron said, well, I don't know. I guess I'll say, Mr. Brown, is there any way? And Laura said, no, you got to smile. Daddy likes when little girls smile. <laughs> okay. Once a year, the children of Israel had something to ask of their father God, something so important that it would shape their destinies. Forgiveness of sin, cleansing, propitiation, a ransom for their sins, the Day of Atonement. Dear ones, this is not a picture of easy access. One man, once a year, quickly, fearfully, going through a thick, impenetrable veil to ask God for atonement. You know, many speak of God today as though he were their good buddy. You know, yeah, God and I, we're the, we're, uh, he's my homeboy, 
right? Or worse yet, he's my servant who just exists to bless me. Bless me, God. I hate this story, but I'm going to tell you because it's a good illustration. True story of a young Christian woman, single, who one day during a church service was propositioned sexually by one of the elders of the church. She was so shocked that she left the church, you know, ran out of the church that day, never came back for months, and finally, with help and counsel, she got up the nerve to call this fool. And she said, so tell me, do you do this often? And he said, yeah, I do it pretty regularly. And she said, how could you? I mean, how could you, as a Christian, as a leader in the church, how could you justify this behavior? You know what this guy said? He said, oh, well, I have a big forgiver. No. No, this is not how we approach the Holy One of Israel, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Moses, when he gets to the safe side of the Red Sea and he's seeing the uh, Pharaoh's army boiling in the sea, he bursts into song in Exodus chapter 15, verse 11, who was like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods. Who is like you? Glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders. The answer is, there is none like you. The holy of holies is no place for arrogant flesh. We approach such a God on his terms and on his terms only, and those terms are clear. We approach God, we gain access to God by means of a mediator bringing an offering. Do you want access to God? You need a mediator and an offering. Now the problem is, the old covenant system provided partial access, but what ancient Israel desperately needed and longed for, and what you and I most desperately need for our day of atonement, is a greater high priest and a greater offering. And thanks be to God, we get both in the one person of Jesus Christ, Reading from Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, how much more shall his blood purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Jumping back to Hebrews 7, verse 25. Therefore he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he ever lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, uh, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. He's become higher than the heavens, who doesn't need daily as those old high priests who offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law, the Old Testament, appoints as high priests men who have weakness, But the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the Son, 
who has been perfected forever. Now this is the main point of the things we're saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Praise God. Once for all. I mean, can you even imagine what those words meant to the Jewish high priests under the Mosaic system? Ladies and gentlemen, the high priest who mediates our day of atonement is in all counts superior to the high priest of the old Aaronic priesthood. For example, they were subject to the king. What about our high priest? He is a king. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. The old high priests died. They were just mortal men. Our high priest, he ever lives to make intercession for us. The old high priest didn't earn their office. Their only credentials were that they were the sons of their fathers. Our high priest, no, he earned his title by God's oath in Psalm 110. Thou art a high priest after the order of Melch Tzadik, the priestly king. The old high priest, they had to offer sacrifices for themselves. Why? Because they were sinners. What about our high priest? Sinless, no sacrifice necessary. The old high priest never satisfied the requirements. They always stood. There was no rest. There were no chairs. In fact, for a priest to sit would be blasphemous as if to say, well, job's done. I think I'll check out for the day. No, the job was never done. What about our high priest? Reading from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. Every high priest stands ministering daily, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, what did he do? He sat down. (laughs) The job was done. He sat down at the right hand of God. Praise God. You know, the old high priest couldn't even free the people from guilt. They could never offer security. In fact, Hebrews 10, verse 3 says that the offerings actually increase their guilt. But our high priest has mediated a secure, guilt-free covenant. By one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. The old high priest, they couldn't provide perfect access to God. That thick, impenetrable veil, it, it hung for centuries as if to say, keep out, do not pass upon penalty of death. What about our high priest? He provides perfect access to the very presence of God. We can boldly enter the throne of grace, not arrogantly, but boldly enter through the blood of Jesus. The veil is rent. Jewish history records that the doors of the temple, which were always tightly shut, the doors of the temple wouldn't stay closed. They kept coming open supernaturally as if to say, all are welcome now. We have such a high priest. Hallelujah. Perfect atonement can be had by all who will receive the perfect mediator. Now let me finally close this with a quick mention of the offering. Remember, we need a mediator bringing an offering. Now according to Leviticus chapter 16, every year on the Day of Atonement, two identical goats would be brought before the children of Israel. The children of Israel were to stand off and identify with these two goats. One was called Azazel, which means the scapegoat. Today, Azazel is a modern Hebrew word for hell. 
Now every year on the Day of Atonement, these goats stood on the temple court facing the whole congregation of Israel. The high priest would lay his hands and impute, listen, he'd impute the sins of the nation upon this animal. It says in the book of Leviticus, the animal became sin. A scarlet ribbon was tied to the horns of the animal, and the animal was led led to a high cliff by a fit man, the scripture says. Now, When that man got to the edge of the cliff, Jewish history records that the scarlet ribbon was removed from the horns of the scapegoat, attached to the edge of the cliff, the goat was pushed off the cliff, and as life passed out of that sin-bearing goat, the ribbon, according to Jewish history, supernaturally turned white, as as if God were saying, though your sins be as scarlet, now you've been forgiven for one more probationary year. But... The Talmud, the ancient rabbinic commentaries, in Tractate Yoma, chapter 39, paragraph B, it says, in a given year and every year thereafter, the scarlet ribbon stopped turning white. Anybody want to guess what year that was? It says it was 40 years before the destruction of the temple, the scarlet ribbon stopped turning white. The temple was destroyed in A.D. 72, minus 40 brings you right to the year. Jesus of Nazareth became both our high priest and our offering. I mentioned that Leviticus says that the scapegoat became sin. What is true of our scapegoat, Jesus? God says God has made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus is our scapegoat. I mentioned that the high priest imputed sin on the scapegoat and led that animal away to be slaughtered. What is said of our own scapegoat, Jesus, in Isaiah 53? He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Ladies and gentlemen, you're free to unhitch from the Old Testament. But why? Why remove yourself from your family tree? Why remove yourself from the treasure, the richness of your heritage? It makes no sense. And as a Jewish guy reaching out to the Jewish world, the thought of unhitching from the very book which reveals Jesus more intimately, more personally, more profoundly than anything else ever written simply makes no sense. Father, I thank you for giving us a unified and perfect singular word of God, from which we find hope and solace and consolation and counsel, salvation itself. We bless you that you are speaking to us through the Spirit, through the Word, in ways that we can interpret freely with the eyes and ears of our hearts. May we hear from you today. Thank you for giving us a high priest and offering in the singular person of Jesus, our King. In his name we pray. Amen.